You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Hey everyone, we have a special presentation of some of our earlier podcasts. We have episode 9 and episode 10, part 1 and 2 of Urban Mallard Research with Dr. Ben O'Neill. I think everyone will find this one really interesting because it relates to basically city-dwelling mallards and whether or not hunters are actually harvesting these urban ducks. So give this one a listen. I think you'll really like it. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. I am really excited about what we uh, have to bring to you today. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Ben O'Neill from Franklin College in Franklin, Indiana. Ben is going to be sharing with us some uh, some updates from some really exciting research into uh, urban mallards uh, in that, that they've been conducting here over the past few years. But uh, first, I want to welcome Ben to the show. Ben, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really, really honored to to be a part. To get us started here, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are, uh, what what role you have there at Franklin Franklin College, and uh, what you have, you know, what your your background is and your your interest. Great, love to. So, I'm a wildlife ecology professor here at Franklin College, which is a small liberal arts college just south of Indianapolis in central Indiana. And uh, over the course of the last decade, I've been really fortunate to get to work with a group of um, energetic undergraduate students who are, are in our ecology and conservation track. And it, it's a really uh, perfect place for me to leverage my, my interests and my passion for waterfowl conservation and research uh, to be able to kind of ignite an interest in undergraduates and, and hopefully equip them um, to be uh, ecologists and conservationists in a variety of different fields different ways and um, be just really uh, capable scientists and thinkers. And if, uh, if a few of them end up becoming uh, full-time duck biologists, I'd be pretty thrilled about that too. So, um, so here in central Indiana, we're, uh, we're kind of mid-latitude um, within the Mississippi Flyway. And so we have, just like every region, have our own kind of unique set of um, monitoring and research and conservation opportunities and challenges that's unique to our geography, right? And so we sit right on the fringe of greater Indianapolis, which is a really booming, uh, growing metro area. Um, And then we also uh, did a a significant part of this work that I'll tell you about over in um, Champaign-Urbana. Those partnerships started when I was doing graduate work there uh, a little over a decade ago, uh, with the University of Illinois and Illinois Natural History Survey, and so we've been fortunate to partner with some other other researchers there as well for this project. Um, yeah, and so so my work uh, as a professor uh, here at Franklin College has um, given me an opportunity to to work alongside some of our um, our managers with the Department of Natural Resources who have applied questions, right? That they 
that they need answered in order to be able to effectively manage the resource, the, um, the duck and the goose and the swan research or, or management that happens here. Uh, and one of the things that um, our state waterfowl biologists and I have been talking about for many years was the significant number of mallards in particular that exist within um, urban and suburban landscapes here in our own, in our home state and, and honestly throughout the continent. Um, and so that just kind of sparked uh, some, some curiosity and some, some questions that then has built into a, a full-on research project. I want to back up a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about that, that research in here in just a minute, but your background a little bit, I, you and I have known one another for probably 10 or 15 years now, and, and, and I do recall you were, at, uh, you were in uh, southern, southern Illinois, right? Uh, Univer- University of Illinois. At, University uh, in of Champaign Illinois, Urbana. okay. And so you did, you did quite a bit of work on, on migration ecology of waterfowl in that region. You actually did some pioneering, rather pioneering work on the use of radar, weather radar to track waterfowl migrations through that region. So you have you have quite a quite a diversity of, of uh, experience and expertise that you can kind of bring to a lot of these questions that I think are going to be of interest to our um, to our listeners. So yeah, I just wanted to share that, let folks know that uh, you're not a spring chicken. You've been studying waterfowl waterfowl ecology in that region for well over a decade. I appreciate that. Uh, pioneering is a generous description of it, but it certainly was uh, some some really, I think, intriguing um, opportunities to, to start to answer questions about large-scale movements using some tools like weather radar and um, portable radar and um, trying to just understand some of the spatial dynamics of ducks as they move across the landscape and, and how those movement patterns um, influence our management, our conservation. And so, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a neat kind of uh, continuation of some of that work to now start thinking about um, some of these questions that we'll talk about here today. The transitioning from, from those larger scale movements down to birds that, that at least on the surface you probably think are pretty localized, those being the urban mallards are going to be the focus of this discussion, you know. So, so that is pretty neat sort of, sort of transition. And whenever I, you know, we, we, you and I first talked about this a couple of weeks ago at the North American Duck Symposium. And, and, you know, I'll confess whenever I first saw the title of your presentation, I thought that I was going to know the answer uh, to the, to what you found. You know, I figured, okay, well, yeah, urban mallards are probably just going to find they're hanging around those uh, the the cities, and maybe they'll wander outside the city limits a little bit. But then you and I got to talking, and it was it was actually not that at all. I was completely surprised to learn of some of the results. So, uh, I want to we want to share some of that some of those results with our listeners. I know this is going to be really interesting because as you as you uh, already introduced the uh, landscape in uh, across North America across the world is becoming increasingly urbanized and so these urban mallards these urban ducks are some of the uh, some of the most direct interactions that uh, a lot of people have with waterfowl and I think it's really interesting to start to learn about this so uh, so with that I'm going to ask you to sort of talk a little bit about how you got you, you've sort of you've already introduced uh, a bit about how this got started, but uh, tell us a little bit about the research. What what are the objectives and uh, kind of how are you going about trying to answer these objectives? Yeah. So it really, like you said, started with some simple observations that, that a lot of um, naturalists and hunters are, are keenly aware of, which is that uh, different times of year, you find really significant numbers of ducks and geese in, in these developed landscapes. And so, uh, trying to, you know, as a, as a 
I don't know, a collaborator along with, with state and federal biologists, we're always trying to think about how do we, how do we comprehensively think about um, the waterfowl resource in our region at different times of year. And, and more and more in areas like um, central Indiana, that, that broader resource includes these urban birds. And so naturally um, we start to wonder, okay, are, are these birds, uh, first of all, how abundant are they? Can, can we start to quantify those abundances? And second of all, if, if they are abundant at meaningful levels, what are they, what are they doing? Are they, uh, are they really staying in the same spot? And you'll hear a lot of, a uh, lot of folks uh, kind of comment on that anecdotally, uh, you'll hear references to city birds and, and, and how they behave. But then there's also curiosities of individuals wondering, uh, are these birds doing more vigorous things on the landscape? And um, so we set out just to try to, to try to address those questions using a fairly simplistic approach. And that was intentional, um, both from, a, a, you know, a budget standpoint, but also from an, uh, the ability to to translate the research in a way that invited my students as undergraduates to, to participate in the, uh, the development of the, the methods and the interpretation of the data, and then the communication of the data to the public in a way that was intuitive and um, accessible. And so we used a, a pretty basic tr traditional leg banding approach to look at where birds move and when they're harvested and things like that. And so our aim was to determine, do they move outside of the city limits? Do they contribute to harvest? And, and and if so, what kind of habitats are they being encountered in by hunters? So we we have this picture here. We have these urban mallards that a lot of folks interact with, and we're just trying to answer the fundamental question of you know how many are there? Where are they going? Are they available for harvest? And and what are the other interesting questions that uh, or in, interesting behaviors of these birds? And so, um, so with that as the background, you guys. Uh, you started this uh, when uh, about three or four years ago? Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and we we started in in two areas that um, East Central Illinois in the Champaign Urbana complex, and here in the nine county region of um, Indianapolis and in the surrounding suburban counties here in Central Indiana. Okay, so tell us a little, a little bit about the the methods that you that you employ. You've referenced banding, but let's get into the details. How did you catch these birds? Where did you catch them? What time of the year did you catch them? Yeah, great question. So we were working in the um, in the post breeding, post hatch period in June June and July, primarily here in our latitude, um, and we were uh, yeah, we're working in uh, in these suburban communities. Uh, so we're in we're in backyards that have residential ponds. We're in golf courses. We're in uh, wastewater treatment plants. We're um, in sometimes in stream corridors that move through towns and um, a variety of other uh, a lot of corporate uh, ponds that exist on a lot of the commercial and retail complexes within these areas. And so we we literally we would canvas these entire these counties and we would find uh, meaningful you know. Uh, a kind of congregations of birds. Uh, we'd engage with landowners to get uh, formal permission, and then we would spend uh, anywhere from one to two weeks baiting birds. Uh, these are um, adults and uh, hatchier juvenile birds, getting them uh, comfortable with an area, and then we would kind of gradually start to build out what we call a walk-in trap, which is a pretty simple uh, you know, cage-style trap with funnels in it, and uh, we we get them acclimated to that, and then when the time is right, we set, we bait the trap carefully, put the funnels in place, 
and then leave it set for just a short period of time to, to try to catch as many birds and then not, not leave them in there to stress them for any extended period of time. Then we, we go retrieve them and we um, document, you know, the, the sex and the age, um, the condition in some cases, some, some morphometrics, and then we fit them with a leg band and we let them go. Um, that's when the, that's when the data collection process starts from there. So are, were these birds flightless at this time or, or was it a mix of both? It's a mix of both. Yep. When, you're, when you're catching them. Okay. Yep. A mix of both. And right, really right during that June, July window, you'll see, uh, you'll see the, the males and the females, uh, engaging in that, in that molt uh, throughout that period. Yeah, so it's an entirely, so you encountered entirely different situations from what we normally, at least in, in entirely different levels of, um, you know, climatization of, of these birds from what we see in normal wild birds, right? You know, you, you wouldn't be able to do that, use that kind of approach with flighted birds in the wild, would you? Well, that's a good question. Corn is a powerful attractant. Um, and, and so, um, you know, if you, if you put bait out, yeah. I mean, in fact, this, this style of trap is used, um, to band, you know, migrant scop in the, on the Mississippi river, not a walk-in trap, but a swimming trap. That's functionally the same thing. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's putting out a, uh, an energy rich food source, letting them find it, get, get habituated to it and then having them enter a one-way trap. So it's really not unlike the, the methods used elsewhere. So I think to your question, um, the capture methodology was not predicated on them being uh, habituated to human contact. Uh, so these, the majority of these birds still have some level of uh, you know, aversion to human interaction. So they would flush off of sites. Um, certainly there are some situations where birds are, they're behaving like the, the, the park ducks that are familiar with white bread. Um, but the, the vast majority, 95% of these birds are more, uh, behave just as kind of wildly and skittishly as you would expect any any wild duck to. Interesting. Okay, and so you you shared a, you shared a few notes with me before we got on the podcast here. So I'm gonna I'll reference some of this. So over those three years, you you captured and banded over 2,200 mallards. Uh, it looks like uh, 86 locations from nine counties across Illinois and Indiana. And as you've alluded to, these were not. Uh, these were, were heavily urbanized locations, not like out in a cornfield or out in a uh, out, out in some uh, you know semi wild location, like in backyards and commercial areas. Yeah, and interestingly, so all of our trap sites were actually within um, annexed city limits. So in terms of like the legal jurisdiction of cities, towns, and villages, all of our trap sites fell within those city limit boundaries. So these are not going to be birds that have been, that, that would have migrated down, you know, would not have migrated into the, into the city. These are pure urban bird or urban birds. Yep. Okay. And, and we, we constrained our, our trapping to try to make sure that we didn't confound uh, the, the sample with long distance migrant birds. So by doing it right there during the, the brood rearing period um, in, in the central part of the, the, um, the summer, we were able to, to say with confidence that these were local birds, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, we've, we've sort of set the stage here with we, we have these 2,200 birds that have been banded, and, and, and then we're going to use those band recoveries to determine where they've been harvested, where, uh, how far and in which directions have they distributed. Great. Yeah, so one of the cool things about um, 
banding studies is that that anticipation once you've deployed the bands of not knowing exactly what's going to unfold. And uh, one of the things that that made me really excited about this work is that when I talk to really uh, knowledgeable waterfowl biologists in the Midwest, I would ask them, so here's what we're doing. What do you think we're going to find? What what percentage of these birds are going to get harvested? Is it 1%, 5, 10, 25, 50? You know, and, and, and there was a lot of when they were uh, you know, when they were honest, they said, uh, that's a great question. We, we don't know what, how frequently these urban birds get harvested and, and how much they contribute to, to our statewide harvest in these different regions. And so, um, so we were really, we had a, a, a genuine, a, a sincere curiosity that first year and then all the subsequent years of what was going to unfold. And so as they started, we get a weekly band report from the USGS Bird Banding Lab and week by week as the different hunting seasons would open and start to get into kind of the heart of their seasons, we'd start to get these, uh, this steady trickle and then a, a pretty consistent flow of, of hunter harvested birds from our sample. And, um, the, the short of it is that, yeah, over the course of the, the four years that followed a, a really, a meaningful number of these birds, uh, were getting encountered by hunters. Um, to this point in time, we've had 183, hunter harvested birds. Um, and those numbers are going to continue to, to increase, particularly as a lot of, uh, Midwestern duck seasons get ready to open here in the next month or two. Okay. So 103 hunter harvested, 183. 100, yeah, 100, I'm sorry, 183, uh, hunter harvested returns. Uh, so looking at our numbers here, that's, uh, and we'll get in, we're going to kind of throw some numbers at some folks here, uh, 8.2% recovery rate, uh, and that's that's over the entire uh, three years of the study, right? That's what we refer to as direct and indirect. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. I think this will be interesting. Uh, sometimes we talk about direct recoveries and indirect recoveries. So tell us just a little bit about you know the, the most basic. What are we talking about when we say that? Yeah, a direct recovery is just a bird that's harvested within the same same annual cycle, the same season. So in our case, uh, they're birds that we banned in June or July and then get harvested sometime. Uh, October through January in that same year. Um, and then indirect recoveries are birds that are harvested in subsequent years after, you know, at least one annual cycle has, has elapsed. And so, um, for the purposes of some studies, you just merge all that together. You just want to know, you know, what, what birds were harvested period. Mm -hmm. The reason that we sometimes split out that direct, direct recovery is that, um, some of our, uh, our population and harvest modeling that occurs at the continental level specifically uh, targets the the direct recovery rate uh, for a variety of kind of um, analytical reasons. But and so we we do sometimes look at those separately. But for this the purpose of this study, we're just a, right now we're looking at a little bit more than an eight percent recovery rate of those uh, twenty two hundred bands, as you said. Okay, so we have an eight point two percent recovery rate. And what does that translate to in terms of a harvest rate? Somewhere around 73% of mallard bands get reported. 73% of the birds, of the bands that are, that the, of the birds with a band that are shot and recovered by the hunter are reported. So in other words, there's like 27% of those banded birds that are recovered by the hunter, but that are not reported, right? So we have to correct for that to get from recovery rate to uh, harvest rate. 
So, and we have ways to we have ways to calculate that reporting rate, but that's why it's really important for hunters to report their their bands. Is we use this information is really vital for estimating with greater confidence these harvest rates, which are used in the analytical models that you reference. So, we go from an eight point two percent recovery rate to an eleven point two percent harvest rate for these birds, and and uh, I, I think that that's that's quite comparable to harvest rates for for you know wild mallard populations, is it not? You're right. Yeah. And that, that in and of itself, we were kind of, um, pleased, uh, to see, um, not necessarily to see any particular result, but we were, uh, we were intrigued, I guess, by that, that result that these birds that are thought of by a fair number of biologists and, and hunters as, as pretty sedentary birds are, are actually, uh, active and, uh, moving about the, the landscape at, in ways that that result in comparable harvest, like you said, between mallards from the Prairie Pajo region to to these birds that are hatched in uh, under someone's bush in their backyard. <laughs> you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient, and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. The new position I have with, with DU, I get some of those calls, you know, about a, a bird that's uh, a hen mallard that's nesting in someone's flower pot. And I kind of make some assumptions about, well, that's just sort of a strange bird. They do weird things whenever they're in the urban environment. And that may be true, but now your research is telling us that, hey, these birds are actually going out there and they're available for for harvest. And they're available for harvest pretty much at a rate that we uh, that we the, the same rate we see for for wild you know truly wild populations of mallards, which is is fascinating. And among those 183 birds that we've had harvested by hunters and reported, um, one of the the things that struck us right away is that these birds are moving uh, from the, the the various trap sites, and there were about 86 locations that they were banded at across um, the central Indiana region and east central Illinois, and and all that was within these urban areas. Uh, but one of the things that struck us immediately when we started getting band returns was how um, how they scattered across the region. And so uh, about half of them were harvested um, locally within uh, 10 kilometers, about six miles of their respective trap sites. Um, but then uh, another half of them moved greater distances than that. About 30% of them um, moved kind of moderate distances uh, between six and 62 miles. And then about 20% of them actually moved a considerable distance uh, away from their trap site, went on these long distance movements. Um, and so we were, we were really uh, just, I don't know, intrigued by that, that, that they, that so many of them didn't simply jump into the nearest cornfield and get, get harvested there, but they were blasting around the region uh, in, a variety of directions and a variety of distances. Yeah, so so geographically speaking, what did you learn about uh, where they went? Any particular bias, you know, in, in terms of their direction? Uh, or what did you learn in that regard? These are these birds are banded in the summer. Uh, they're recovered in the fall. And so they're, you know, both of the regions that we were working in, Indiana and Illinois, are kind of uh, mid-latitude. And so you would, you would 
you might expect that harvested birds in the fall and winter are going to move south, right? And you would see this kind of trend of these southerly movements. But we didn't find that. We, they were There was zero uh, trend in the direction that they moved. They were, if you look at a map, they're just scattered throughout the Midwest. They were harvested in three Canadian provinces and nine different U.S. states um, around the, the north central Midwest part of the continent. Um, and so they, they, they went all kinds of places. And, um, and actually, the one pattern that did exist in terms of where they went was that of those birds that went um, a moderate or long distance, uh, many of them, 56% of them, actually went in some kind of a northerly direction rather than a southerly direction. Um, and so that's, that was a bit surprising to us. Was, uh, ben, was that even for those birds that were recovered harvested in the year following their banding or did that did that uh, were those movements more likely to occur in subsequent years that would have been that's a combination of both the direct recoveries in that same year and the indirect recoveries so we found um, we found young hatchier birds that would make these long distance movements uh, post fledging but we also found some um, some indirect recoveries of birds that um, that that had gone through you know a, a an annual cycle and then were recovered. And so um, when I've shared that with other folks, they, um, so mallards are, are repairing every year. And so it's, it's possible we can speculate in some cases that, that an individual might have become paired with a bird from a more distant region and perhaps then migrated during spring migration to a more distant region. But we don't, we don't really fully understand all those mechanisms yet. Some of it's molt migration, some of it's uh, just uh, some basic dispersal from the natal area, and some of it perhaps is pair bonding that draws individuals to more distant areas. Uh, okay, so this has been been going on for three years. So I was going to ask you if you had any birds of a particular, uh, you know, particularly old birds that were, were harvested, but you probably don't have any of that. Let me, I, I will ask you, in, in any of your capture efforts when you were trying to catch these birds, did you, did you happen to come across birds that were already banded? You know, actually, no. Uh, so, no, no other mallards that had been banded by previous studies. So, so we actually we spent three years in Illinois and three years in Indiana. And they, the, the way they overlapped, it was a total of four calendar years, 2015 through 2018. Um, and so, we certainly had recaptures that we observed and studied from our own study, but we actually did not encounter a single marked bird from any previous uh, any previous work at all. Um, but to your point about the age, that's kind of one of the fun things of, of these projects is that here now in this uh, this fifth year of the study where we'll be analyzing the returns, we, we will start to get some some estimates of, of uh, the age of some of these birds based on how long they've uh, carried that band until they were harvested. Yeah, and, and survival rates on any of these birds. Have you, uh, you know, we've talked about harvest rates, but that's just one component of mortality that birds face. Have you... Uh, with, with just a few years into this data set, you probably don't have very much data to work with there. But have you been able to generate some preliminary uh, survival estimates, annual survival estimates? We're we're really eager to do that. We we just now are getting to the sample size where we can, with any kind of integrity, start to estimate that. So here um, we just presented some of the some of the initial results at the Duck Symposium that we talked about last episode, and um, our our intention is to. To, we have this one more year of the the grant to analyze returns, and then our intention will be to kind of complete some of that that final analysis, including survival, annual survival rates, and and 
try to publish that work for the public and uh, for the scientific community here. I think that's going to be a fascinating question in itself to see how those annual survival rates would differ uh, between that urban component, that urban population, and and the and wild population of mallards. I certainly know what I would hypothesize the, the the result is going to be, but I know what I would have hypothesized coming into the research that you're describing now, and I would have been wrong. They so, meet all kinds uh, of different uh, sources of stress and mortality, and uh, and even their fecundity is totally different. And in, in at least I shouldn't say totally different. It it has the potential to be totally different because of the the differing environments that they exist in. Well, well so let's talk a little bit about what's next. You've introduced that, and you have another year of the funding to do this. Uh, are you going to try to secure funding to continue the banding work as it's being conducted or as you've been conducting it, or are you going to try to expand this? You know, one of the things that comes to my mind, and I know you've thought about it, is, boy, it would, it would sure be nice to see what these – uh, what these urban birds are doing on an individual basis and, and on a finer spatial scale. And so that speaks to some, um, some telemetry, uh, you know, so what's, what's next for this work? Great. Yeah. So we're wrapping up um, this fourth year of this Pittman-Robertson grant here with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. It's a federal aid and wildlife restoration grant. Um, so we have a lot of um, sportsmen and sportswomen out there to thank for their, uh, their support of this kind of work. This grant, uh, we'll, we'll put a bow on it, so to speak, uh, with a final report here in the next year. But we already have plans in place to start to address some of those questions that you've mentioned. Uh, I want to get a lot uh, better bead on the demographics, like the um, reproductive rates within these systems, to be able to look at nest success and um, fledging success to help inform that. Certainly, I'd like to get some better estimates of survival we already are starting to build out some um, some monitoring protocols to, to help us get reliable estimates of abundances, not only from these two study areas in Indiana and Illinois, but hopefully a bit more broadly in, in a way that, that helps us understand, okay, if, if we estimate these many mallards exist in a nine-counter region of central Indiana, for example, can we translate that more broadly, extrapolate it geographically to other states? Because uh, Indiana is not unique. There's tons of uh, suburban counties uh across uh u.s and canada yeah and these birds uh, these birds these areas these urban areas are not included in our annual uh you know breeding population survey efforts for the most part right that's correct generally speaking that's right i mean indiana uh our state managers with the dnr do some um some monitoring of mallards during um spring and summer surveys but it's very very unique it's not to your point it's not included in um federal uh monitoring, uh, for example, you know, the May pond counts and breeding pair counts and things like that. So, um, so yes, we, one of those simple goals is to try to ramp up the, uh, the abundance estimates in a way that helps us extrapolate to broader scales to then help provide some information for, uh, flyways and joint ventures as they try to understand the potential contribution of these urban reservoirs of population, uh, to the broader broader flyways, yeah, and then certainly as um, as telemetry technology becomes uh, more affordable and and scaled down in size, I'd love to be able to look at some of the individual movements at finer scales, as you said, and and really seek to understand how these birds are uh, interacting even uh, with with other migratory segments of the population. We we're we're excited to start to get some of that going. And um, if we have time here today, I'd love to tell you about a, I had a conversation um, with a, a big group of biologists um, at the, uh, at the Mississippi flyway 
council meeting uh, back in August in Duluth. Yeah, and that the that was a um, that was a collaborative um, planning meeting that was um, participated in by biologists and researchers from Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. Um, and the goal there is to of that study um, under the leadership of Dave Lukanen there uh, at Michigan State. The goal of that study is to answer some really important questions about Great Lakes mallards. And so I presented this urban work there at that flyway meeting. And one of the things uh, that became clear to those folks is that the urban mallard component is a significant component potentially within that, within that broader Great Lakes mallard population. So we, we are developing a, uh, a collaborative proposal. I'm, I'm just really delighted to be a, a, a contributor to that, not leading that work, but um it's great that there's folks from um, from the academy, from state natural resource agencies, uh, and from the federal government that are talking together about, hey, how can we leverage our resources to try to understand these uh, these questions uh, in the broadest way possible? And so that that proposal is already um, drafted and it's being developed in a, a robust way. And we're we're going to hope hopefully my team here will be able to contribute some of that um, some of the effort and some of the data regarding urban mallards to help really ramp that up in spatial scale. And so that work that you're talking about that's proposed, would that focus on urban mallards across a larger ge- larger geography, or is it focusing on, would it, would it encompass work on duck po- mallard populations in general across that, that Great Lakes region? Good question. Yeah, the primary, oh. sco- the primary scope of that is Great Lakes mallards in general, but the, but the, the, the acknowledgement from from that team is that the the urban population segment is an unknown percentage of that population, and in order to effectively speak to uh, population trajectories and trends and those in that Great Lakes population, they're recognizing that we probably need to get uh, our our heads around the, the the behavior and the and the population dynamics of the urban segment because it's a uh, it could be significant and a potentially growing component of that broader. Are there any other projects of this nature uh, where the studies of urban ducks or – well, I know there are studies of urban geese. I actually listened to, listened to a presentation at the Duck Symposium uh, up in Toronto tracking uh, urban Canada geese. But any other work related to urban ducks across North America that you're aware of? Or is this sort of the, f- the first of its kind in a contemporary era? You know, um, colleagues up in Michigan, um, Barb and Don Avers uh, and their team have been – have also been banding um, some urban mallards. Their um, their work is not uh, it didn't originate with a, a singular focus on urban mallards. They were simply trying to ramp up their uh, their state banding uh, effort on mallards in general. And over the over the course of the last four or five years, they've come to realize that that there's a lot of mallards to be marked in these urban areas, and so. They've done a, a really impressive job of of effectively capturing and marking urban mallards up there, and uh, for example, in the the East Lansing uh, Metro Complex um, and the Grand Rapids Metro Complex, uh, among others. And so, yes, there are folks that are um, marking some urban mallards. That's the primary one that that I'm aware of. Um, I'd be shocked if there weren't some other folks doing a, a bit of this work uh, on the East Coast and the West Coast, um, per- perhaps even in the South. There's just 
it's a it's really a a phenomenon that's I think pretty ubiquitous across the continent. And so I I think we may be uh, one of the the few that are really dialed in on the the targeted questions. Um, but I am excited to say that we're we're looking for any other folks that are that are also interested in trying to trying to connect the dots so we can work together to answer this question as best we can. Well, this is really exciting work. You've mentioned a few other things already that I would love to dive in more details on, but I'm going to resist the urge to do that, particularly the idea of surveying these birds in an urban environment. And that's something that uh, once your conversations with your state resource partners, resource agency partners, uh, once that continues and moves a little bit farther along, I'd love to get you back on and and hear about how those efforts are going and and, uh, any progress that's being made in, in figuring out how to survey these these birds and what we might be learning uh, with regard to the abundance, you know, across uh, across a larger geography. So we'll save that for another time. But clearly, clearly, the research that you're you've been engaged in here is a is a reflection of the fact that the landscapes in which we live and the landscapes upon which waterfowl depend are constantly changing. Uh, our, our, our world is becoming increasingly urbanized, and, and that affects not only us, but it affects waterfowl habitats, and it affects waterfowl populations, and it affects waterfowl populations, namely mallards and Canada geese, would be some of the most obvious, uh, in a way that's very visible to us. And I think this research provides a great connection for people uh, to, to, the, to the resource. So uh, I'm going to give you sort of the last word here, Ben, and share with us some of your insights on what you think this research means and, and why it's important to people, why it's important to the waterfowl res- resource and those that care about it. So what, what's been some of the biggest takeaways for you from this? Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. I, you know, in our experience over those four years, we talked to hundreds and hundreds of folks uh, that live in these these communities, and we found an overwhelming love for for mallards. And one of the takeaways that I didn't expect was just how how well suited the mallard is uh, to be a, a positive catalyst to engage the the public uh, in waterfowl conservation and, and education, environmental education in general. That was really a cool outcome. And then in, in terms of uh, translating some of this work uh, to hunters and, and conservationists that are passionate about waterfowl. I, I just, I love to invite um, those that I just mentioned to, to start thinking about ducks and geese in, in, in richer ways. So a lot of us like me, uh, we love to spend time in the wild marshes and prairies of our continent, but we also spend a considerable amount of our time in developed regions. And so I'm just trying to encourage folks to recognize that the, the birds we interact with in those developed regions are not independent of the the birds that we see in these wild remote uh, natural areas that we all love and and fight for and want to conserve and um, and in fact there's actually this really cool kind of sophisticated intermingling of these these groups of birds and so just uh, excited to see folks maybe opening their eyes to that reality and, and providing some data that that informs that in really uh, concrete ways and um, hopefully as you know, we all are working, I think, to try to protect uh, natural landscapes and try to add habitat um, in our home regions. But there's a certain amount of development that is just uh, inherent in our society. And so, what I what I'm encouraging others to think about is how can we how can we 
kind of acknowledge and reconcile that development and then also make the most of it by appreciating the wildlife that lives there and understanding them, in this case, mallards, and then uh, in some cases, uh, even appreciating them from a hunting standpoint as as they contribute to harvest as well. Great points, Ben. Uh, you and I could talk about this for another half hour, I guarantee you. Uh, we haven't even really haven't even really talked about habitats that you found these birds using and things of that nature. And so we're gonna we're gonna leave that for yet another time. But uh, well, I just invite folks to to stay tuned on that. We're we're eager to share the work, and so we'll try to find as many outlets as we can to share that work for folks that are interested in it. And I'm going to stay in touch with you on it, and we'll probably have you back on once some of this other information has been summarized and the data has been analyzed. So so we'll definitely keep in touch on, on that. Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. I, I, this has been fantastic. Thank you for your contributions. Thank you for, for the work that you're doing to help us better understand waterfowl and waterfowl populations. Hey, um, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.